Hey everybody, welcome to the Science Facts and Fallacies podcast brought to you by the Genetic Literacy Project. I'm your host, Cameron English. And I'm your co-host, Kevin Fulta, a professor who cares about science communication. This is the weekly show where we discuss the biggest stories from the Genetic Literacy Project to keep you informed about groundbreaking developments from the world of science and medicine, and of course, to help you separate facts from fallacies as you read the headlines. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the show. Cameron and Kevin here with you as always. So excited for episode 189, Kevin. How are you guys? Oh, we're doing all right. We're just kind of cleaning up the yard after the hurricane, which is a lot better than most people can say in downstate Florida. We're, uh, you know, we escaped pretty much the brunt of the storm and just had some high wind and rain, but nothing like they had downstate. So, you know, hearts go out to the folks who are really suffering through this and it'll be a long time to rebuild. Yeah, it's always tough when something like that hits the U.S. Um, is there any, like, if people want to donate money or, or supplies or anything, is there anywhere they can go that you know of? Uh, not that I'm aware of, but that's not my, you know, not something I have my finger on that pulse, unfortunately. Um, but I, I think there are many organizations, but please do your homework before giving, because for every legitimate organization, there's... Uh, I, there's a guy in an apartment in Nigeria, <laughs> there's a prince who is trying to come up with a, uh, a former guy who used to pose as a prince till people stop falling for it. Um, no, there's, there's a, there's a lot of scam artists out there and they make just as compelling, beautiful arguments for your assistance as the legitimate organizations, if not better. So give, give, but please be careful of who you give to. The other thought is, is that, you know, and this is the bigger conversation is, you know, this is um, something that's only going to keep happening. And as we rebuild, should we be as a nation thinking about how the future needs to look? So in other words, should we build things that are autumn that are much more resistant to high winds and water around the, around the uh, coasts and not rebuild essentially what was there before? You know, I, just so it can get knocked down again. This is getting really expensive. It's going to get to the point where people can't afford insurance, and the insurance industry is going to get a hard pinch. This is—they're looking. The federal government will have to be in big time. So, it, it might be a good chance to really think about how we rebuild around our coastal communities, and uh, maybe do it better and in ways that'll be better for the people that live there uh, in terms of their protection for their lives, but also for their property. So just my two cents, it seems like a real challenge to uh, be doing this in different areas, you know, over and over again. And I got a funny feeling this is not the last time we will see that intensity of a storm hit Florida. Are you suggesting there might be another hurricane in the future, Kevin? I think you, uh, I think you need to calm down with those predictions. Yeah, <laughs> no, it, it, I can predict another hurricane like the bowling pin can predict the bowling ball. <laughs> There's no, always another. <laughs> but that's that's helpful. That's helpful insight yeah. for for bo- both on the the donation front and uh, you know thinking about the future. It's always a yeah. good thing. Yeah, but, yeah, you know, it, it does. It is like a. It is that we need to think about these things bigger. Like after Katrina and they rebuild uh, uh, New Orleans, you know, it's still up below sea level. You know, <laughs> <laughs> and it just seems like maybe we could truck in some stuff and do it on top. You know, but anyway, that's that's just my two cents. I'm not an engineer. I don't know. Well, with that, let's get into our stories. So first up, 
are most GMO safety studies funded by industry? Next, Nestle, General Mills, and Pepsi have pledged support for regenerative agriculture. Is this a case of greenwashing? And finally, four in 10 Americans are obese. Food producers need to harness biotech to make spinach as tasty as popcorn. That's going to be a fun one, Kevin. But first, <laughs> first step. So this this GMO safety studies. Tell us about this. Well, this article was more of a compilation of uh, of information on the genetic literacy project that really approached this idea of who is funding the research that goes into these projects. So when a company has a new seed variety with a new trait or even another variety with old trait or a couple old traits put together, how is that approved? And we read online all the time that the approval process is not enough. And if you look at, and I mean, you read that if you read the uh, curious literature. So the folks like USRTK, and they have a quote from Michael Hansen here from Consumers Union, who says, you know, look at what the FDA says when they approve. It's just a rubber stamp. You know, that's just Michael Hansen. Um, other folks like, you know, Gary Ruskin from USRTK is quoted heavily here that says that it's um, uh, that agrochemical companies are unlikely to support research that may undermine their financial interests. You know, it's a lot of that kind of noise has really poisoned the discussion around how these things are regulated. In reality, it's extremely stringent and companies form a relationship with federal agencies and partner. And they say, okay, uh, the, the, the federal agency that does the approval, so whether it's USDA, FDA, EPA, they provide a series of very rigorous, stringent hoops for the companies to jump through. And it means all right, we need to see this, 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 and this. They give them a list. The companies do that research. Some of that research is contracted out to independent parties to do that work. And then that work comes back and uh, regulators can make a decision. The allegation is, is that this is all voluntary. And it is. A company can voluntarily step into a discussion with the federal regulator for uh, to, to volunteer if they really want to do what the regulator says or not. <laughs> There's no mandated structure, in other words. There's nothing that every company or every product has to go through. It depends on what the product is, and then the approval process is structured from there. So bottom line is, it's a rigorous process. Even if companies fund it, the better the companies than the taxpayer. At the same time, people are saying these companies are, are, funding, are, are, are funding the work. Uh, they're, they're saying that uh, they're, at the same time they're, they're, that the companies are funding the work, people are saying that the taxpayer shouldn't be covering a company's profits, you know, a, a product that the company will profit from. So that's really where this article starts. And, uh, and, you know, we'll keep going from there. Yeah, that's a really good point. Um, and, and it's one I want to stress because people misunderstand this all the time. I was dealing with this re very recently because, uh, Carrie Gillum, our old friend, fan of the show, Carrie Gillum, she put out an article about the EPA and their, uh, their re-registration process for glyphosate. And she was complaining that the EPA relied on non-peer-reviewed studies, her words, uh, instead of looking at uh, the IARC monograph that we've trashed no to no end on this show. And, and that's a real deceptive way to present information like this because 
the studies are mandated by federal law. So the companies have to do them, like Kevin was saying. The regulators have to look at them uh, in order to make a decision about a product. It's not all they look at necessarily. They like do some background and they look at the existing literature if that's relevant. Um, so that's that's really deceptive. I would just point that out, right? That like in many cases, you actually have uh, reviews that are mandated. So it depends on the trade. And Kevin, you can talk more about this. But for example, if it's pesticidal in nature, you know, like the BT crop crops, for example, right? Those had to be reviewed by the EPA and there was additional research that had to be done. They had to do animal feeding studies and so on and so forth. So there's a lot that goes into it. It's really deceptive and disingenuous to say that this is just sort of a rubber stamp because it's not. No, absolutely. Uh, and if it was a rubber stamp, it's the most expensive and time-consuming <laughs> rubber stamp in the history of the world. And, and back to you know, back to our friend Kerry's point that uh, they didn't even look at the IARC decision. Well, why would regulators care that much? Independent regulators care about what other regulatory bodies have said. You know, if you're there to make up your own mind about something, if 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 the EPA said, you know what, we're just going to approve it because the USDA says it's okay or because Health Canada says it's fine. Can you imagine the uproar that would happen? You know, so it's, it's, I'm, I'm not surprised that regulators, independent regulatory bodies retreat to the peer reviewed literature and to the unpublished company studies and company, company stuff to see how it all fits together and, and what the, and what the data tell us. So that's, that's the other uh, big point. The other thing that nobody ever talks about, and this is what I really wanted to discuss this article, is really important. And that is, if you're a company and you have product X and you're looking to go to the market and you need regulatory approval and regulators say, get us these data, and you go and get those data in, internally and they look real good, then you find an, an external partner, like a university, to independently do the same experiment and see what the data are that they get. You don't go out to a university and say, well, maybe uh, we're gonna, we have to get these data. You guys do it and we'll do it. The, the, the company damn well knows that the conclusions are what the conclusions are based upon their extensive studies they send it to a university for to see if it can be replicated in independent hands. They aren't going to send out something to a, a university for independent verification at extremely high cost, unless they pretty much know the answer anyway. So that that's why so many of these things seem to always fit. You know, they'll say, Oh, the universities always fit with the, uh, what the company wants. It's because the company doesn't ask for help until they pretty much know the answer. And then they just get independent verification. The other thing is that if the university does the test and it doesn't match what the company's found, then it doesn't get published <laughs> and it doesn't get verified. It doesn't get approved. So you don't hear about it in cases where it fails. So that's why it seems to be a big bias towards success. It, it, it's actually just a, it is a bias. I mean, it's a bias that the only thing you hear about are the things that make it through. And that's because Companies knew they would pass, and you don't hear about the things that fail. So that's why there's some intrinsic bias. That uh, that's why it is an intrinsic bias that makes people feel like there's something fishy going on when there really isn't. There's one other thing I want to throw in here, and that is the way this discussion is usually framed. 
the starting point is industry's probably up to no good unless we double check and we keep them honest. And of course, there are cases of corporate misbehavior and you know fudging data and doing deceptive and manipulative things. Nobody denies that, but I think you just have to look at the incentives here. And Kevin, you got to this a little bit just a minute ago. If you put out a product and it kills people, that's bad for your bottom line. <laughs> it's, it just is, you know, so like just hypothetically, if some new potato hits the market and then Frito-Lay makes potato chips with it and someone, you know, people start having seizures or whatever, you know, maybe someone tased them like the glyphosate thing. I don't know. But you see what I'm saying, right? Like it's bad. You don't make money when people get sick and die from your products. So it's it's not that you use that and you go, well, I guess we can trust everything they do. That's not what I'm saying. But the point is they have every incentive to get this right. And we talked about this on a recent episode as well. But you have independent verification. You have regulators that look at the data. But there's nobody involved here that wants to make something that's dangerous. I just people I wish people would remember that. No, absolutely. You know, there's there's absolutely no incentive to, to having a failed product or something that caught, like you say, something that causes problems. And this is what people don't understand. A company is in this, you know, these, the, on one hand, you're saying that companies are these big, greedy organizations that are only out there to make money. <laughs> and if that's the case. They want to sell a safe product, not spend their time wrapped up in billion dollar litigation because the uh, activists have controlled the narrative that says something is dangerous. They don't want to give them even a little bit of rope there to be able to start building that noose. It's not the way that companies are, are behaving. And it's actually kind of funny. There was one company that shall remain nameless little company that does a uh, smaller product uh, that's barely in the market, but uh, to get genetic engineering approval, uh, they had to produce their product, which only occurs seasonally. And so the EPA would come back and say, well, we need an amino acid analysis of these products. And they would say, yeah, but we don't have it right now. It's not on the trees right now, or it's not being grown right now. So uh, we don't have it. And they would say, well, we need it before we can go forward. So now you had to wait another year before you could even begin to do the experiments. This isn't a rubber, rubber stamp by any means. Final, final thought, <clears throat> and um, this comes from our friend, Dr. Henry Miller, who was at the FDA for several decades. I don't know exactly how long, but one of the points he made, and I asked him about this because I was writing an article that was related to this issue, and he said, absolutely every company volunteers, in quotes, for the FDA oversight, even though they technically <laughs> don't have to, because that's sort of like living in a neighborhood that's mafia controlled. They're like, hey, you're going to need our protection. You need our protection, don't you? Like it's it's that sort of circumstance because <laughs> the federal government is very powerful, I think, as we all recognize. And if you work, if you're a corporation, they can make your life a living hell. They can just cause all sorts of problems, not to mention, as Kevin said, all of the lawsuits and the litigation that can come from just average people suing you or getting into a class action or what have you. So yes, technically voluntary, but everybody participates everybody volunteers if you will so okay moving on to our our next story kevin is this greenwashing what these big giant food companies are doing with regenerative ag it's 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 ambiguity washing <laughs> <laughs> this is a really interesting thing because it drives it, it drives me bananas and this was an article um by sarah labrec 
Nestle, General Mills, Pepsi, and other food companies have pledged support for regenerative agriculture. Is this a greenwashing campaign? And this originally was published in Reuters. And the funny thing is, is if we say regenerative agriculture, what are we talking about? And I think even the people that practice it aren't exactly sure what, what it is. And in short, they will say, well, it's, uh, it's agriculture that cares about biodiversity and soil and uh, doesn't use synthetic chemistry. So in a way, it sounds a lot like organic agriculture only without the certification. So you see where I'm going here. You know, organic agriculture has very strict rules and certification that is, that is a challenge to get. You have to have land that's um, not used with synthetic chemistry in three years. You have to have certain rules that apply. And so what this is, as far as I can tell, is a catch-all bin that allows you to have a halo without actually earning the halo. So you don't have to do all the hoops of organic agriculture. You could probably cheat a little bit now and then if you need to and still call it something that people will appreciate and, and give you a thumbs up for. And so that's where I think we are with regenerative agriculture. With that in mind, uh, Nestle, General Mills, PepsiCo, uh, they have all started to throw money at regenerative agriculture. Okay, so what the heck is going on there? Well, only a tiny bit of uh, land in the U.S. is considered to be regenerative agriculture. So 1.5% is what the number was of the 90 million arable acres in the U.S. And what exactly does that mean? And that's really the big problem. I'm not exactly sure. I mean, I just am taking a guess there. Uh, and even folks who are in it, you know, it, it, so it does seem like a greenwashing campaign. They mostly follow the work by one uh, ag consultant who talks about how when he switched to cover crops that he was able to change the soil, you know, and change the soil chemistry and the way the soil builds and all that good stuff. And that makes sense, but that's not some big secret. And that's something that even conventional farmers have been doing as of late, especially small ones, because a lot of nice work came through organic practices where people were studying the formal organic practices to show the value of cover crops and how things can work to add either uh, organic matter, which is great for the soil, uh, helps it retain water, all the other good things, as well as nitrogen if you use certain uh, certain cover crops. So it just didn't seem like there's a good thread that started with a definition here. It talked about this ambiguous idea of, of regenerative agriculture, uh, wrapped itself in a halo and said, we're going to throw a whole bunch of money at it. So that, that's really where the article starts. I think what bugged me most about this, Kevin, is the way they talk about farmers as if they're idiots to the general public, you know, and maybe this is just my perception. I could totally be getting this wrong, but I'm reading this story and you have this one journalist who obviously isn't familiar with the topic because of the way she's framing it. And she's talking to her audience, which is anyone who reads Reuters about farmers like Pepsi is like, Hey guys, have you heard of this thing? It's called cover cropping. It's this really cool idea. We'll, <laughs> we'll, we'll give you a few pennies on the dollar. If you try this, it's just so obnoxious the way they're talking about it. Um, and then they don't, the author doesn't say anything about uh, trade-offs. There's no cost-benefit analysis. We just start with the assumption that uh, climate change is going to kill us all imminently, and we need to go to this, this farming 
technique because this is going to do it, right? There's no talk about land expansion or yields or chemical use. Like there's no, like there's no, it's unicorn farming is basically what it is. It's like, see, when we, when we put this magic dust on the field, Jesus comes down and then he gives us healthy, all natural food. It's just stupid. And it, it drives me nuts. And, and here's just one practical thing I want to point out. And this is from uh, the extension scientists at UC Davis out here in California. One of the things they point out is that, yes, cover crops are, are great. They can be very useful, um, but they have costs as well. So here's just a couple of them. Increased water use, you know, so if you farm in a place like California, which is in a drought right now, you know, you have to water the cover crops, <laughs> right? So that's, that's something you need to consider. And another thing, this isn't uh, necessarily guaranteed, but these crops can become uh, reservoirs for pests. And that can be a problem when you start growing the next, you know, your actual cash crop the next season. So all I'm saying is there's nuance here and there's trade-offs. And I think this story really missed the boat. Yeah. And cover crop seed isn't free. It can be really expensive yeah. uh, for different cover crops. We planted uh sun hemp, uh, uh, crotillaria ginsia this year, which is a great uh, nitrogen fixer and puts a ton of junk in the soil and grows to be 10 feet tall. You got to plow the stuff in and it, it's a real bear to work with, but it, it gives you lots of stuff in the soil, which you know, okay, there's benefit there, but it takes time. It takes money. It, and and like you say, water and all the other goodies. So it's a big deal. The other funny thing in this article that I, that I thought was hilarious was says one of our new innovations is planting direct seedlings or direct seeding with a burst of air. <laughs> it's like, hold on, this has been done for a long time now. You know, I mean, this is how they plant, you know, plant most corn seeds. Um, so I, I think this was a little bit, the article itself was as naive as the discipline. And I'm a little bit concerned about that this is actually starting to gain a little momentum. And especially if companies are throwing money at regenerative agriculture, um, what about just throwing it at regular agriculture? <laughs> These are the same companies that are buying the potatoes and the wheat and all the commodities from the farmers at record low costs as of somewhat recently. And uh, come in these in the, in the farmers are barely getting by, you know, it's, it, it is really a very strange concept to me that they would fund one type of farming based upon ambiguous rules and regulations. When the kind of farmers kind of farming that farmers do because it works already in the most sustainable way they feel on their land is not getting funded and actually subject to the lowest prices. So it just is kind of, you know, the usual bizarro world that we live in these days where we see this kind of rationale uh, used in discussing how we're going to uh, help fund farming. Yeah, it's garbage. It's garbage. I want to add one other thing because this, I just got irritated as I was reading this, Kevin. So one thing I, I that really bugs me, and I think I've mentioned this before, but I, it really makes me mad when people just throw climate change into a title and they go, oh, you know, husbands and wives are fighting more, uh, you know, hotter temperatures because of climate change. Like this kind of stuff, it's really obnoxious. For one thing, it like it cheapens the topic, right? Because climate change is an important issue and people really don't understand it well enough. So that's one thing that really pisses me off. But then they tend to, the journalists, especially my people, if you will, they tend to exaggerate. And, and what they do is they they look at a particular set of models that are widely used to uh, project uh, carbon emissions. 
And let me, let me read from this well-known climate denier website. This is Nature, the biggest uh, science journal in the world. And they say, emissions, the business as usual story is misleading. And this is by two climatologists. And they're basically pointing out that economic growth has been slower than uh, was anticipated when all these models were developed. I believe it was a little over a decade ago. And we've had technological improvements that are reducing our CO2 emissions slowly, but it is happening. And so they say, happily, and that's a word we climatologists really get to use, the world imagined in the worst case scenarios is one that in our view becomes increasingly implausible with every passing year. And they basically make the case that these projections are way off. Our emissions are not as high as reporters say, because they look at these models and they go, oh, well, this must, this is the scary one. But those models assume that we're going to keep using more and more coal over, as, over the decades. And that's not happening. So I'm not here to say that climate change is a hoax or that we're not contributing to it. Obviously, we are. And obviously, some of its impacts could be very serious and, and very harmful. But you can't oversell this, especially when you're talking about something as pointless as regenerative agriculture, right? You can't just say, climate, it's, you know, we're all going to die, and then we got to go with this this farming system. Okay, I'm done, Kevin. Sorry for the rant. <laughs> no, you got it. That, but that's it's a really important point. When you turn something into alarmist and it doesn't happen, then you begin to lose the trust and the confidence of the people you're trying to influence to create the change you want to see. Look at what happened with the GMO stuff. I mean, the alarmist media, the, the Seralini rats, all that stuff. People got fatigue from constantly hearing about bad news that never materialized. And when you watch Inconvenient Truth, which I recently did, it's a 2006 movie, it said we would be mostly underwater by 2022. And guess yeah. what? You know, so I think that hey, what, what year was Manhattan supposed to be underwater? Yeah. And, and this is the point. Right. <laughs> and so it and so what it does is it makes a legitimate problem more trivial and makes it look like uh, it's not a problem and gives fuel to the people who are uh, gives fossil fuel to the people who are against <laughs> it. So it's a good opportunity for us to kind of just, you know, and I agree with you, putting climate in the title of a article that has nothing to do with climate is not necessarily uh, a good move. Well said. Kevin sums it up very nicely as always. Okay. Final story of the day. Four in 10 Americans are fat, Kevin, and we need to make spinach taste like pizza pockets or whatever. Uh, tell us about this. Uh, <laughs> all right. And so this is by Richard Williams. I don't know who Richard Williams is prior to this, but uh, it was in the GLP and he's the chairman of the, or no, he's from the center of truth and science and on the advisory board for the Institute for advancement of food and nutrition science. And he served as a chief social scientist at the FDA's center for food safety and applied nutrition for 27 years. And he provided what I think is the most flawed thinking I could ever imagine. And it really, it really was irritating to read this. So it's funny that we chose three articles that made us angry this week. <laughs> <laughs> um, the White House is having this whole national conversation about food and, and regenerative agriculture people are there and everybody's there with an agenda. And what we really need to be doing is taking a good, hard look at the decisions that humans are making around or Americans are making around their food. And 
it, article starts out by talking about obesity. That we're talking about four in ten people being uh, uh, being obese, and a significant number of them being morbidly obese, which means you have increased uh, presence of markers or habits or, or physical characteristics that are associated with higher morbidity. So things like diabetes, uh, uh, heart disease, these come from a direct consequence of overweightness. And, you know, my family's plagued by this. We've got bad genetics and everybody puts on extra pounds in the same way. And, and, you know, something I've wrestled with my whole life. I know you've talked about that too. And, the idea is, is that as a nation, it's getting worse. And it really went up since 1980. And, and this is really reflected uh, accurately in Richard Williams' argument or in his article. The problem is what he says is that, well, uh, chefs are making things more tasty. You've got more access to convenience food. You've got all kinds of stuff that tastes great and everything's wonderful. And the problem is, is that we need to take healthy stuff and make it taste good. And I don't know that I agree that that is the solution. Covering your broccoli in chocolate isn't going to solve the obesity problem. I think that, uh, in my opinion, this is completely the opposite. Rather than make um, healthy food fit this model of what tastes good, sweet, salt, fat, is how do we teach people to cook in ways that the food is excellent even without meeting uh without fitting some sort of um standard you know make it tasty good food tastes good and can taste good you can have a wonderful tasting salad with simple dressing you can cook vegetables in ways that are fantastic you can you can do it but it's just people have lost the art of cooking they've lost the ability to prepare food i've I've had roommates when i was in college in grad school, who every meal came out of a paper bag they brought home on the way home. And so it's it's going back to the fundamentals of how do we make dinner? You know, how do we eat? And and if we change our habits to do that, that may be the easiest way to crack the obesity crisis. And that's my two cents. Yeah, I have a lot to say. Let me let me be nice for just a second. I, I've had Richard Williams on this show before it was Science Facts and Fallacies with Kevin and Cameron. Oh. It was just me interviewing people. So um, he's a good guy. He's done some interesting work around using personal biomonitoring data, especially as technology approves to improve public health. You know, so if people can monitor, say, their blood sugar in real time and their heart rate in real time, and you can sort of do that stuff with some of the Fitbits and that kind of thing. But he's talking about like real high-end technology that can really improve, you know, these sort of measurements. Anyway, so he's done some good work, but I just didn't like this article. And I think the premise, and you sort of got to this, Kevin, but the premise is all wrong that like if we just make nutritious food taste good, that'll uh, either solve or mitigate the problem uh, dramatically. I don't, I don't think that's the case. And the reason is that there's a lot of healthy food that tastes good. And if you overeat it, you'll get fat. And, and like examples that I really like, I really like almonds, especially if they're um, smoked and salted. Oh my gosh, it's a delicious snack, but I can put away like a half a bag of those in a half hour, <laughs> dude, if I'm not careful. Right. Right. And if, and if you look at the nutritional profile of an almond, <clears throat> it's pretty good. It's a good snack. It's a, it's something that should be in your diet. If you're looking for protein and so forth, it's, it's healthy. Um, same thing with peanut butter, same thing with blueberries. Again, I can polish off a cup of blueberries in like two minutes, right? I just, you can get nutritious food that tastes good already. So the problem is not 
that. I think that really bugs me. And the other issue, and again, I'm going to be a little contrarian here. I don't care. There's nothing wrong with ultra processed food. I think that term is stupid. I think there's nothing wrong with having nutrient dense food. That's actually a life-saving development, frankly. The fact that you can have access to a large amount of cheap calories conveniently, that's enormous. You know, that's something our ancestors didn't have. They had to chase down buffalo and what you know i don't want to do that that's a lot of work i got other stuff to deal with so um there's nothing wrong with this i think the reality is we're uncomfortable just telling the public you have to take some responsibility for your choices you know and i don't know why i don't i don't know if it's you know because we're sensitive to people's feelings or whatever but if you're overweight, it's largely because of what you do right i under, i know all the arguments i know the genetics right? I have my thyroid, my, I'm depressed. Like I know all of it. Okay. And, and like Kevin said, I've struggled with obesity for most of my life. I don't buy any of it. You just have to start making better decisions. That's just what it comes down to. Well, and that's true for many people. I, I think there are folks out there who, you know, certainly, and I'll say it for both of us that do have issues where they can never attain a non-heavy state, but it is, something that we understand very well that folks in the area of dietetics understand very well and can prescribe. How do we uh, make ourselves a little more fit as a nation? And the problem that I see nowadays is almost the normalization of uh, obesity that, well, this is the way I am. I'm a big guy. I'm a big girl. And this is my beautiful self. You know, we see that all the time now. And one of the places where we really miss the boat may have been, and I've told this to other people and I've been kind of been kind of unpopular about it, was during the COVID pandemic when it was really on top of us, you know, in the beginning, you know, we're still under the pandemic, absolutely. But uh, in the beginning, I said, you know, one of the comorbidities is obesity. And can we have a national effort where we're all either stuck at home for work or for, you know, whatever, to take that time and let's expand how we can take care of ourselves as a nation. You know, maybe have some sort of national fitness thing where we all come out the other side of this thing in a little better shape because the one of the confounding variables towards mortality, mortality from COVID was obesity. And can we maybe try to trim that back a little bit? And, you know, I could have lost a couple of pounds during the break. Most people put on weight during the pandemic. You know, so it, there could be opportunities for us to really slow the normalization of this and really look at it as can we uh, maybe normalize, you know, they talk about, you know, taco Tuesdays and meatless Mondays, but what about just teaching people to how to prepare food at home and how to make a nutritious meal for their families and save some money in the process. So there's a lot of good opportunities here that we can jump on. And it's not as simple as, as just saying, uh, you know, make, make healthy food taste better. You know, I think that's already there. It's, and as a social scientist, I'm surprised he didn't get this. It's not about changing the food. It's about changing the consumer's expectations of the food. And what is it that we really want out of it? And I think that's really where we need to start. The National Weight Control Registry, it's this ongoing study uh, put on, uh, pr- conducted by the federal government, by the Health, Health and Human Services Department, I think. And what they do is they just follow people that have lost, I think it's more than 30 pounds and kept it off uh, for more than a year. And they do this study because they want to monitor 
what people are doing, like what, what allows them to keep the weight off. And it's really simple things like weighing your food, which takes a few extra minutes, but it's not hard, you know, weigh your food, count your calories, exercise, you know, just like these little things that encourage mindfulness and they, they, they encourage you to be aware of what you're eating and what you're doing. It makes all the difference in the world. And of course, I'm not trying to be disrespectful to people who have medical conditions and who put on weight as a result of that. That's a thing. Um, but those are by and large, no pun intended. Those are exceptions <laughs> to the rule, right? So the exceptions prove the rule for, and that's, this is for most people. I'm just sorry, you know, and like it, like a lot of people, I gained a ton of weight during the lockdowns because all I did was drink and eat chips. <laughs> and that was my fault. You know, it was a good time. I was hanging out with my neighbors. I couldn't go anywhere, but that was the decision that I made. And, and it's taken a while to work off the weight that I gained, but I was able to do it. And, uh, yeah, that, that's all I got. I'm just, I'm, I'm really over. And incidentally, we're going to go back to the fat, fat acceptance thing very soon, uh, for another show, but I'm oh, just, yeah. I'm just over it. I'm just so over this, you know, like, like blame everybody and anything, but the person who's engaged in the behavior that needs to change. I'm done with it. I had a gym teacher once she was by and large. <laughs> Anyway, um, <laughs> who am I following on Twitter this week? Um, um, I, I'm following Miles. <laughs> this is a transition there. I'm following Miles Power. How the hell did I never mention Miles? He is at Power M 1985, and Miles Power has an outstanding series on YouTube. And uh, he did um, a great dissection of the situation in Sri Lanka. So if you're trying to understand what happened there, check out Miles' YouTube channel. And uh, other stuff that he has there, I kind of forgot about um, over the years, but he has been so productive and does such high-quality work. And uh, he does a huge amount of stuff on uh, the InfoWars guy. Um Alex, Alex Jones. Jones, Alex Jones, gay frogs. Yeah, he, he, uh, he <laughs> they're doesn't... turning the freaking frogs gay. <laughs> they're turning the damn frogs gay. <laughs> I kind of do a good Alex Jones. Um, <laughs> he, uh, he d did a really nice special on it and well, did a million of them on Alex Jones, but, but took apart conspiracies like chemtrails and stuff going way back and had a lot to say about, um, issues in genetic engineering. So his, YouTube channel is an excellent primer for any of these issues that you want to dive into and a really nice recap on Sri Lanka. So who are you following Cameron? I'm following a, uh, a climate researcher named Roger Pilkey Jr. I think that's how you pronounce his yeah, last Roger name. Roger Pelkey. Pelkey. Okay. There you go. Yeah. I don't, I don't know what, uh, where, where that name comes from. In any case. Yeah. It's just at Roger Pelkey Jr. On Twitter. And that's where I got all the information about uh, climate or uh, CO2 emissions projections. Really good stuff because he's he is an, one of the author, one of many authors on the IPCC reports, and he regularly publishes in peer-reviewed journals. So he's he's not only part of the conversation; he's producing the data that people discuss. So it's really good to follow folks like that. And he's a good communicator. You know, he's like Kevin in that he knows how to take this real technical information and sum it up for people. And they go, oh, I get it. It's actually not that, that complicated. So follow Roger Pilkey Jr. on Twitter. Oh, and I, just let me throw in. And he takes a lot of heat for saying it like it is. 
And so he is also somebody who is very, very much tempers the uh, alarmist rhetoric. And I, I really think he calls the balls and strikes as he sees them. And I've always appreciated his input a lot as we try to dissect something as complicated as climate change. Absolutely. Yeah. He gets hate on source watch and to smog blog and all these other, you know, exposing the corruption websites that are just full of crap. So yeah, follow him and give him, you know, support him, read his books. He's ready to, you know, give him some money. He does good work. Okay. We're done. Thank you guys as always for listening to us. You can follow us on Twitter as well at Kevin Fulta at ACSH org for my writing and everything that I do. We will see you next week. week.